Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining us to listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations offered today will touch your heart and truly show you that your life is worth living. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to the Bishop Sheen Hour here on FM 98.5 CKWR. And uh, boy, I'm excited to uh, go to Sunday school with you. Uh, it is Sunday morning. It's early. But, you know, the early bird gets the worm, they say. And uh, so you're going to be treated to two fabulous lessons this morning. Uh, the first one is a reflection uh, with something that I think a lot of us ask Uh, We ask this question, what is wrong with the church today? Uh, Trying to figure out, you know, why did uh, these things happen? And it's a valid question. Uh, And so Bishop Sheen has the answer for it. And so we're going to listen to his response. And then, of course, we're going to do our catechism lesson, and we're going to follow lesson 11 of a 50-part series. And it is on the Blessed Trinity. So uh, we always need to understand the Trinity a, a little bit more. It's a mystery. I was told that by my catechism teacher. The Trinity is a mystery. But at least Bishop Sheen will help us unravel this mystery or understand it a little bit better. And so I encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy these two reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Because we live in days of rapidism, indecision, and almost confusion, May I try to calm your spirits by presenting to you the problem of the church today. First of all, remember that the church undergoes a tremendous change every 500 years. So does history. Go back to the first 500-year period, and you have the aftermath of the fall of Rome. The church was then so upset that Jerome in the cave of Bethlehem thought the end of the world had come. St. Augustine spent 18 years writing the city of God trying to explain the fall of Rome. In fact, he talked about Rome so much that as he, as he journeyed about northern Africa, the people said, Si tachiat de Roma. Oh, if you would only shut up about Rome. Then we come to the second 500-year period, the Muslim invasion. The Muslims came, first of all, to within... 120 miles of Poitiers, and then later on swung the crescent up to the very gates of Vienna. Along with that, there was the Eastern Schism. The Eastern Schism begun by Photius and Michael Serialarius. 
and they break away the Eastern Church, even to this hour. In the third period, there was the religious revolution, the decay of morals, the decline of religion, far worse than today. There was need of a reformation. Reformers very often reform the wrong thing. What was needed was a reformation of the way men lived, not the way men were thinking. There was nothing wrong with the faith. There was something wrong with morals. And now we are living in the fourth period. And the church today is undergoing change, principally because, what we shall show in a, show in a moment, of the impact of the world upon us. In each of these periods, the church had great errors or heresies to meet. In the first 500 years, the church always was battling with what we have called Christological heresies. Namely, how many intellects did Christ have? How many wills? How many persons? How many natures? This was the struggle. With Arianism, of course, creating the greatest disturbance of all. Then in the second 500-year period, the difficulty that we had to face was not with the historical Christ, but it was rather with the head of the mystical body. So the Eastern churches grew up with the head. In the third 500-year period, our difficulty was not with the head, it was with the body. So the church split up into many sects. First period, the historical Christ. Second period, the head of the mystical body, the Holy Father. Third period, the body itself. Our time, what? The world. Our environment. The impact of science, technology, eroticism, and the spirit of the modern world that God is dead. It is really the easiest of any of the enemies we've had. And it is a tragedy that so many succumb. What we are face to face with is this. We are living at the end of Christendom. Now, do not go out and say, Bishop Sheen said we're at the end of Christianity. That's the way the newspapers would put it. I said we're at the end of Christendom. What is Christendom? Christendom is the political, economic, social life of nations influenced by the gospel ethic. Christianity is the leaven in the mass. But with the death of Christendom, that leaven is disappearing. 
we are not at the end of Christianity. But I think we are at the end of Christmas. 25, 30 years ago, who would have thought of abortion? 40 years ago, a divorced woman came into St. Thomas's Church, Episcopal Church in New York City, and the whole congregation turned their backs to the divorced woman. The decline of morals, public decency, this means that Christianity today is not the letter. We will not have time to say what we should be and what we sometimes fail to recognize because worldliness has too much gotten hold of us. We are really a separated people. And that's the meaning of ecclesia, ecclesia, being called out. We are not of the world, but today we say we are of the world. So we're contributing to a great extent. Now what are some of the consequences of this change in this fourth period? First of all, we have become apathetic. There are no fires. We've become very broad-minded. Indifferent. Frederick Kennedy wrote a poem once comparing Christ coming to Golgotha and coming to the modern city of Birmingham in England. He said, when Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him on a tree. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. So it rained. The winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the streets without a soul to see, then Jesus crouched against a wall and sighed for Calvary. It was more endurable than the indifference of our day. Thou art neither hot nor cold. Therefore will I spew thee out of my mouth. I quoted Yeats who said that today the good are indifferent, the weak are filled with passionate intensity. Bordeloo said that the world would end by giving a great yawn and the devil would come out of the mouth. T.S. Eliot, the poet, said the world will end not with a bang, but with a whimper. And our Lord said we will be buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage, just as 
people did in the day of Noah. So one of the consequences of this fourth period is we lack fire. If there is any fire and intensity, and if there is a great love of the absolute, that fire and intensity is applied to the political order and not to Christ. No great fire for him. But any political, economic subject, and immediately one is almost on the verge of conflict. That's the first consequence. A second consequence is what might be called the hodiernization of theology. By that I mean making theology today. One does not become known by saying that two and two make four. But one does become known by saying that two and two make five. Ibsen said that it once, and he was quoted all over the world. Chesterton answered him and said, how do you know that two and two make four, except by adding over and over again? How do you know that two and two make five, except by adding over and over again, two and two make four? There is a fixity. But today we've gotten away from scripture in theology. We are answering one another's questions. We are not discussing theological issues. One theologian writes this, another writes this. And the result is the depth of theology is lost. St. Paul was very much disturbed at that, even in his own day, when he wrote to Timothy. And in his first letter, I think it was the sixth chapter, if anyone is teaching otherwise, he will not give his mind to wholesome precepts, I mean those of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to good religious teaching, I call him a pompous ignoramus. He's morbidly keen on mere verbal questions and quibblings, which give rise to jealousy, quarreling, slander, base suspicion, and endless wranglings. All typical of men who have let their reasoning powers become atrophied, atrophied and have lost the grip of truth. We've given up scripture. Believe me, there are three things that are absolutely necessary in a well-developed Christian life. An alarm clock to get you up for the holy hour, the Eucharist to keep your faith, and the Bible to make you learn it. If you notice how very little of scripture is quoted today. So this is another effect. 
But it is only a certain type of theologian would be quite wrong to condemn all. And the third effect of this modern crisis is the decay of the science of catechetics. As I told you before, we start with the community. Marxism has finally influenced us. The primacy of the mass. I mean the group, the community. The assumption that if we know Christian doctrine, that we will be Christians. Our blessed Lord never said, if you know my truth, you will do my will. But he did say, if you do my will, you will know my truth. Believe me, obedience is the condition of knowing science. No scientist ever dictates to nature. He lets nature talk to him. So it's the training of the will that we have to develop in our theology. The reintroduction into catechetics of a bit of discipline and order and law. That's for our contemporary time. Now, how are we to feel about it? When we say we're at the end of Christendom? When we bemoan indifference, the decay of theology and catechetics? Are we to be sad? No. These are great and wonderful days in which to be alive. Wonderful. Forty years ago, it was easy to be a Christian. The very air we breathed was inspired by the Christian ethic. We could walk safely on our street, not troubled by dishonesty in the merchant world. Marriages were rather solid. It was easy to be Christian. The atmosphere was Christian. It was healthy. Today it is not. And today only the strong survive. Some of those going along with the currents of secularism. Listen, dead bodies float downstream. Anyone can be with it. takes a live body to resist the current. And that's why these are great days. And who are the strongest in the church? Not the priests, though America has a very good priesthood. Not the sisters. They are fairly good, but they've been more infected with secularism than the priests. Who? The laity. The laity is the hope of the church. It always has been in every great crisis. The greatest crisis the church ever faced was Arianism.
Arianism, very simply, was the notion that Christ is nothing but a good man. When the hypostatic union was defined in 325, there immediately began to be a number of bishops and priests who became Arians. As a matter of fact, most of the bishops of Spain and Portugal and France and Germany became at least semi-Arian. They were not sure that Christ was God. Maybe he was just a man. There were ten provincial councils that were held in the church up from that time until the year 385. And every one of those provincial councils became Arian or semi-Arian. Never before was the church so near a collapse. The big council of Constantinople was held in 385. The laity gathered for it. And every bishop that came in, they gave him a painting of Our Lady. And they said to the bishop, you have been discussing the question of whether or not Christ is just a perfect man. We will tell you who the perfect creature is. It's Mary. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR, uh, the Bishop Sheen Hour, and I'm your host, Al Smith. I think you uh, received a great deal of insight uh, to what is going on in the church today. But I love how Bishop Sheen reminded us that it's not the priests that are going to save the church. It's not the religious sisters, although they are very important. It is the laity is the hope of the church. It is us that will continue to work and to strive to bring about God's kingdom, to share the love of Christ with the world. And so let us remember that as we journey out today. Uh, Many of us will be going out into the community, going to Mass, and uh, interacting as we do uh, so much, and uh, to know that the laity have a vital role to play. And so let us be encouraged by that. And, you know, people are always asking me about, you know, what can I do to read up, uh, to be a good uh, ambassador of Christ uh, for him? And, uh, you know, I say, listen to Bishop Sheen, uh, read his books, uh, watch some more of his videos. And, you know, we created a number of years ago this little labor of love. It's absolutely free. Uh, It's on the Internet. It's called bishopsheentoday.com. And my good friend in Branchton, Camilla Gunnerson, you know, has a great gift of developing websites. And uh, she put together this beautiful site where we just drew everything that we could find on the Internet. The videos, the uh, free talks, the uh, books that were downloadable for free from a number of university libraries. And we put it all together in one site. It's just bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, I, you know, spend hours sometimes just watching Bishop Sheen videos because he teaches so much in those little 22-minute lessons. And the catechism is beautiful. So, uh, again, that's my tip for you. And, again, I want to give you the free 
tip. I, I know that, you know, I always say uh, salvation is free, right? Uh, you know, groceries cost money, but salvation is free. And uh, it is free to all those who ask the Lord to come into their lives. And um, again, just want to give you some resources wherever I can. And so that is my advice to you. Uh, you know, again, the free downloadable books. Um, you can read so many of his great uh, little pamphlets that he created. Um, his uh, Catholic Hour recordings. All the words that he said are in transcripts uh, where you can read it. Um, also his television broadcast. All of those transcripts uh, of what he said. So literally, you know, tens of thousands of pages to read if you wish. And hundreds of hours of uh, videos to watch. And I have about five years of archive programs uh, from CKWR on the site too. So uh, really it is your go-to place. And so again, my thanks to Camilla Gunnarsson and Envoy Media for their help. And also I don't want to forget uh, my good friends who helped me many years ago. uh, Two great organizations. Uh, one is just simply FultonSheen.com, and uh, there is over 300 audio recordings, uh, quality masterpieces uh, to uh, share, of course, and have as your own personal library. And you can visit their website at www.FultonSheen.com, and also my good friends at BishopSheen.com, and they have all the video collections that you can have for your own library and have them in your own home to share. So, again, it's this technology came uh, with the sweat and blood and tears of so many individuals, and I'm grateful to them. And so, uh, I guess, again, I'm just saying, do your homework. But it's great to do our Sunday school together every Sunday morning here, so thank you for joining us. And so now we're going to uh, enter into the catechism part of this uh, one-hour program. Uh, We're going to be on what we call Lesson 11, and it's going to explain the Holy Trinity. And uh, so, again, we need to learn our faith. It does take time. And uh, if you wanted to learn the faith under the watch of Bishop Sheen, uh, he would say, you're going to have to commit 26 hours with me uh, to go through this. And he provided these lessons to anyone who wanted to uh, join and understand the faith. It was uh, required reading, almost, I want to say. And uh, because if you're going to commit yourself to Christ, you better get to know who Christ is and the church that he founded. So anyway, uh, I love to share this with you now. So please sit back and relax and enjoy this teaching by Bishop Sheen. Peace be to you. We have now come to a point where we propose to discuss the Trinity. But as I was preparing something to say about the Trinity, there came to my mind two possible objections that you might have had concerning original sin. May we treat those briefly. Uh, One objection might be this. Why is it that uh, I have to suffer on account of Adam? I had nothing to do with him. I was not involved with his sin. The answer is, yes, you were involved. So was I. We were all involved. Simply because Adam was the head of the human race. 
A river polluted at its source affects the entire current. Parents are infected. The infection passes on to their children. When the president declares war, we are at war and without any individual declaration on our part for the simple reason that the president is the head of our country. So too Adam was the head of the human race. What he did, we did. Just as one man's evil can affect a whole nation, as the good and honor of a father can affect the family, so too the disobedience of one man, Adam, affected us all. But God in his mercy has repaired that harm through the obedience of the new Adam, which is our blessed Lord. The second objection that might be urged against original sin is, why should I lose the blessings that Adam had on account of his sins? Is there not an injustice on the part of God to deprive me of the many favors that he had simply because he sinned? In answer to that objection, it must be recalled that there is no injustice done because injustice is the depriving one of something that it is, is his due. When Adam sinned, he lost only gifts. Gifts that God gave him. Not things to which he was entitled because of his nature. On Christmas Day, when you go around giving gifts to all of your friends, suppose you give every one of them for Christmas a velvet potholder. I come to you the day after Christmas and I say, why didn't you give me a gift? You might very well answer. Well, I did not even need to give gifts to my friends and to my relatives. If I did not give them anything, I would not be depriving them of that which was their due. And when I do not give you anything, I am not depriving you of that which is due you in justice. And furthermore, though we lost those gifts, we get them all back. We get back communion with God now through grace. But the other gifts which Adam lost, we do not get back until the general resurrection. And we get back more than we lost. As the priest says when he puts water into the wine at the offertory of the Mass, Mirabiliter condidisti et mirabilius reformasti. What thou didst so wonderfully make, thou didst more wonderfully reform. Leaving now those objections behind, we come to the Trinity. You know how to bless yourself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. When you say in the name of the Father, you put your hand to your forehead. When you say in the name of the Son, you put your hand below to the breast. And when you say the Holy Spirit, you place your hand first on your left shoulder, then on your right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Notice that when you do that, you also make the sign of cross, which is redemption. You were baptized in the name of the Trinity, and our blessed Lord often spoke of it. For example, when he said, going, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our blessed Lord did not say, in the names of. In the name of. Because there's only one nature, the nature of God. The Trinity means there are three persons in God and only one nature. Without going into very profound explanations of nature and person, a nature answers the question, what? And a person answers the question, who? I repeat, there are three persons in God and only one nature. And a person in the Trinity does not mean the same as a person in this world. A person in the Trinity is not someone with hands and feet and a beard. A person in the Trinity means a relation or a relationship. For example, there's a road that runs between Chicago and New York. There's a road that runs between New York and Chicago. It's the same road, but it is a different road under a different relationship. You see how out of one thing you get the multiple? Remember your chemistry? What was the chemical symbol for water? H2O. That is its nature. It has only one nature. But is it possible to have various relationships within that one nature? Most certainly. H2O can be a liquid. It can be ice. It can be steam. Is the liquid a different nature from H2O? No. The ice? No. The steam? No. Somehow or other, the three are in one. Just as in the sun, there is substance, light and heat, and yet only one sun. Now we're going to apply this in some way to the Trinity, which is a great and tremendous mystery. And when I get through... I will not have explained it to you. I remember once having spent an hour describing with analogies the Trinity to someone who was taking instructions, and I insisted very much upon the fact that it was a mystery. When I finished, the good lady said, at the beginning you said that this was a mystery. It's no longer a mystery to me. You made it perfectly clear. Well, I said, Madam, if I made it perfectly clear to you, I did not explain it right. It should be a mystery. And it will be when I finish. There are various ways of approaching the subject, and I'm going to start very low. I'm going to start with life, to show you that life is complex. And then we're 
gradually going to take life right up to the Trinity, by analogy. It will seem as if I'm a million miles away from it, but bear with me. I hope the explanation will not be like that of a, a lawyer who, arguing before a judge, went into a long history of cases, legal decisions, precedents, and in the most confusing way. He had a dim suspicion that he was not perfectly clear, and he said to the uh, judge, uh, Your Honor, do you follow me? The judge said, uh, Yes, he said, I do, but if I knew the way back, I would leave you now. So I beg you, bear with me. Life. What is it? That mysterious thing that is bound up with all of our pleasures and destiny. That thing which thrills me and saddens me. It sometimes seems the greatest of all gifts and at other times the most burdensome. That thing which I know best and which I know least. What is it? The first obvious answer is given to us by the commonplace things round about us. We always associate life with some kind of movement or activity. If we see an animal lying motionless in the field, it gives rise to the suspicion that possibly the animal is dead because there seems to be no movement. And then when a child is full of exuberance and joy, we say it's full of life. Notice that we associate life with movement and our explanation and description is really not too bad. When you come to a more scientific definition, you find out that the movement or the activity has to be what is called imminent, it has to be inside of the thing. There's another kind of movement which is called transitive. For example, the light that seems to come from phosphorus, heat that comes from a radiator. It has no power of generating heat within itself. It just passes from the outside. Stove, for example, has purely transitive activity. So does radium. Stone rolling down a hill has transitive activity. But life on the other side has this different kind of activity, which is called imminent. It is from the inside. Now let us try and find a law concerning this life. And the law is, note it carefully, the greater the imminent activity, the higher the life. In other words, the more the activity is inside of the living thing, the higher it is. All creation, as you know, is a pyramid. At the base of the pyramid is the material chemical order. Then there are plants and animals, man, angels, and God. We are now going to apply this law. 
It is so universal that it can be verified in every one of the orders. A stone, as we know, has no imminent activity, though Michelangelo, when he finished the statue of Moses, struck it with his chisel. It see, he said, speak. It seems so lifelike that really it ought to be full of speech, but it had no interactivity. But there's interactivity in a plan. It always has its mouth to the breast of Mother Nature, and it takes up into itself all the vital elements that are needed for it. When you come to an animal, it has higher life than the plant. The plant has the power of vegetation, has the power of generation, begetting seeds. But the animal has two powers, imminent powers, that the plant does not. One is the ability to move, and the other is the ability to see, to taste, to touch, and to smell, what is called sense activity. A plant cannot decide during the winter to move from New York down to Florida or California. We have to be very fair in our examples. But an animal can move from light to shade. Then, too, thanks to its sense knowledge, it gets the outside world inside of itself. It possesses an inner world. Dog can know its master's voice. When you come now to man, is there a higher activity? Oh, yes. Thinking and willing. Man has all of the imminent activity of plants and animals, but he has also something else that plants and animals have not. Knowledge and love. First of all, he thinks. He thinks thoughts like faith, justice, hope, relationship, fortitude. Where do these thoughts come from? They're not in the outside world. You never saw faith out for a walk. You never saw fortitude eating a dessert. You never saw relationship climbing a hill. Where did you get these ideas? Your mind generated them. Your mind is fecund. Do not think the only kind of generation in the world is the generation that the animal has and that a human being has to beget its kind. There's the chaste generation of the mind. The ability to beget ideas or words. How come To another point about the mind. When the mind begets an idea, generates something, what it generates does not fall from itself. Like an apple falls from a tree, like an animal falls from its kind when it is born, the fruit of our mind stays inside of the mind. All we got to do is just simply look into the mind, and there it is. It is distinct from the mind, 
but it is never separate. That is why when I want to find a thought, I just go back into my mind. I do not look on a shelf for it. Take now the will. We have a will and we can choose. We can love. And we have the power, thanks to our will, of loving that which we think about. We can love the truth. Love the truth even that is in our own mind. We do not always need to love things that are outside of us. That's the amazing thing about our will. Is that our loves, just like our thoughts, can be imminent on the inside of us. We will not have time to touch how the angels think, but let us go to God. God is perfect life. Therefore, he will have perfect imminent activity. I say perfect imminent activity. Since he's a spirit, we will have to understand that perfect imminent activity after the analogy of our own, namely after the intellect and our will. So we look inside of ourselves to find some faint resemblance to this divine life. Now we said what we do in our mind is to think and also to love. Now God also thinks. And what does God think? He thinks a thought. Or a word. That thought of God or that word of God is distinct from him, but it is not separate from him as my thought is not separate from my mind, though distinct from my mind. I have many thoughts. So do you. But God has only one thought. And in that one thought or one word is contained all of the knowledge that is possible, all things that are known and can be known. God, therefore, does not need any word but that one word, which is the image and the splendor of his substance. Now, we call the words of the Gospel of John, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Who is the word that became flesh? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the thought of God. Well, you may ask, well, why do we call him the Son of God? Oh, that's not difficult to answer. Did we not say that you generate the thought in your mind or the word that is in your mind? Did we not say there's a higher generation than carnal generation? Well, God generates an eternal word. Now, applying it to the human order, what do we call the principle of generation? The Father. Do we not? 
And what is the term of generation in the earthly order? A son. All right. Instead of calling God who thinks, the thinker, and instead of calling the thought or the word of God, just the thought, why not call God who thinks the Father? And why not call the God or the person who is the thought the Son? That is why the word that became flesh is called the Son. That is why the psalmist said, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And the Son of God became the Son of Man, and the Son of God who became the Son of Man is Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let us take another analogy. We have yet the third person of the Blessed Trinity. We said we not only think, but we also love. Now, love is a relationship. It's a movement toward that which is love to unite it to oneself. I love you simply because I am communicating to you truth. Now, love is not something in me. Love is not something in you. Love is a mysterious bond uniting both of us. Love, therefore, is always to be understood as something that unites. And notice, too, that though love is, love is distinct from the thought, it proceeds from the thought and also from the thinker. God loves. God loves his perfection. Every being loves its perfection. The perfection of the eye is color. It loves color. The perfection of the ear is harmony. It loves harmony. The perfection of the stomach is food. It loves the food. The perfection of God the Father is God the Son. The perfection of God the thinker is God the Word. Is the Word of God. And the Father loves the Son. Love is not something in the Father alone. Love is not something in the Son alone. Love is a mysterious bond uniting the two. And because here we are dealing not with the personal and the biological, but with something infinite, that love cannot express itself by canticles, by words, by embraces. It cannot express itself like unto anything that we have on this earth. It can only express itself by that which signifies the very fullness and exhaustion of all giving, namely, a sigh. Something that lies too deep for us. All deep love is speechless. And that bond of love that unites father and son is called holy breath. Spirit, holy love. And just as the color of the perfume and the beauty of the rose do not make three roses, but one, as one times one times one do not make three, but one, just as I am, I think and I love, and yet I have only one nature. 
So in a far more mysterious way, there are three persons in God, and only one God. Thus there is in God a tremendous encircling love. God is life, truth, and love. Now we know the life is the Father, the truth is the Son, and love is the Holy Spirit. And with John Donne we say, batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but not breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand overthrowing me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another due, labor to admit you. But oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet, dearly, I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie me, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free, nor ever chased, except you ravish me. God. Good Sunday morning to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for our Sunday school class together. And uh, boy, I learned a great deal about the Blessed Trinity. And, uh, you know, I don't claim to be, you know, a great student, but uh, repetition is very good. Uh, I know there's a saying there, I think is, is it repetition is the mother of cure? Or <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up on Google. And maybe Pat Murphy can help me, of course. Uh, he'll be coming in at 7.30 to share uh, Joyful Country with us, uh, some beautiful scripture selections that he has for us. The Holy Spirit's inspired him. And so I'm always looking forward to his uh, contribution to uh, helping me get to heaven. And, uh, and then I will follow him up with um, some prayer time, of course, the Holy Rosary and uh, the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. And uh, so it is a great Sunday morning lineup here. And I ask you to stay tuned for the Lutheran Hour. And uh, again, uh, how many hundreds of thousands of lives have been touched by that program. And uh, again, we have a great morning lineup here. I like to say church is in session and it's here for hours and hours on Sunday morning. So uh, thank you for joining us. And so I would invite you to again visit the website at bishopsheentoday.com. Uh, great selections of audio, video, and uh, of course written word, uh, all free. Of course, we, we're on a budget and we love to share. Again, I always say salvation is free. And sometimes I think Bishop Sheen should be free too. So <laughs> anyway, enjoy. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. <laughs>